This morning as we come to the book of Esther, I'm going to try and cover a pretty big chunk, plus make up for uh, what I didn't quite get to the last time I was up here preaching about Esther. Um, So I'm going to try and cram a lot in here and go through the first chapter or so uh, pretty quickly here. Um, So that's kind of the the setup for what we're going to be doing. And I thought, I don't know if we'll always do this when I'm uh, going through Esther, but I just want to read the first chapter and then into chapter 2, the first uh, four verses of chapter 2. And it's kind of a lengthy passage, but I just want us to to get familiar with uh, what we're going to be talking about. And hopefully uh, you've read through the book of Esther in preparation, and so this will just be a reminder. But uh, if not, we'll all read it and be on the same page, hopefully. So, Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come on the king's command, uh, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. 
So the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard all the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may be repealed, that, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his in its own script and to every people in its own language that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people after these things when the anger of king Ahasuerus had abated he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what she had and what had been decreed about her then the king's young men who attended him said let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. We're going to stop there. So... That's a lot. A lot of funny names, too. I'm sure I butchered some of them. Um, but I've entitled the, this uh, sermon, Setting the Stage, because that's kind of what is going on here. Uh, as we read through this first chapter and into the second chapter, uh, we see the setting for the story of Esther. And in particular, the main character of this first chapter is King Ahasuerus. And so that's kind of what our focus when we come back to uh, this portion of scripture, our focus is going to be mainly on the king and who he is, how he acts, what we can learn from him. Um, but before we get to that, I do want to try and uh, wrap up some things that, that we didn't quite get to last time. So why don't you uh, pray with me and then we'll get into this. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we have the opportunity this morning to uh, look at the story of Esther and to learn from it. Lord, help us to see you in it. And Lord, help us to see your work, uh, even through a godless king who follows his own pleasure and is so self-consumed. Lord, I pray that uh, you would use me to speak clearly about who you are, about how you work in our world and in our lives. And Lord, I pray that all of us would, would be encouraged through uh, the study of your word this morning. Lord, we commit this time to you in your name. Amen. So a couple of things that, that we didn't quite get to last time. Um, 
we were talking about the book of Esther as a whole, and I was talking about the fact that the book of Esther is kind of unique in a lot of ways, and there's some things that, that we should be um, careful about when we come to the book of Esther. The first thing that, that I talked about was the fact that you read through the book of Esther, and God is not there. He's not mentioned once. His name is never written down in the pages of Esther, and he's not there. So this is a book where God is absent. Right? No. <laughs> that is uh, something that, that some people have read through the book of Esther and have said, well, God isn't even in this. We don't, we don't need the book of Esther. Throw it out. And yet, when you look at the book of Esther and when you realize that this is talking about the people of Israel, God's covenant people, you can't help but see that God is at work in this book. Even though he's never mentioned by name, even though uh, Esther never cries out and says, oh Lord, you are my refuge, you are my strength, and that we don't see that, nonetheless, God is at work. So he is in the book of Esther. He is in the story of Esther. And one of the, one of the reasons people come to this conclusion that, well, we don't need the book of Esther is because they look at it as separate from the rest of Scripture. And you never want to take a book of the Bible and separate it from the rest of Scripture. It needs to be thought of and read into the whole story of the book of the Bible. And when you do that, especially with the book of, of Esther, you see that Esther is a story of salvation. It's a story of God in his sovereignty and in his uh, power protecting his people, bringing them through some pretty crazy situations. And if you look at the rest of the Bible, you see that he does that time and time and time again. And this is the God that we serve. He is our refuge and our strength. As we read in Psalm 46 earlier, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And that really is the God who is here in the book of Esther. Another thing that we want to be careful of as we read through the book of Esther is uh, what I call the, the storybook syndrome. If you read the story of Jonah in a children's storybook, it's much different than reading the book of Jonah in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you read the story of David and Goliath, it's much different in the Bible than it is in the kid's storybook. And I don't think I've ever seen a kid's storybook about David and Bathsheba. Have you? I don't think I have. Why is that? Well, sometimes we like to take the Bible and the things that it talks about and make it nice. Right? So that kids can read it and go, oh, that's a happy little story, you know, great. And I don't want to be too cynical because there is some good in that. 
right? I mean, we want to tell our kids Bible stories. We want to read them Bible stories. But at the same time, we don't want to sugarcoat things that aren't sugarcoated. And if you've read the book of Esther, there's some tough stuff. And, and there are some things in the book of Esther that are sugarcoated that really shouldn't be. Um, we read about one of those things at the very end of what we read this morning, this beauty contest. It's not necessarily a beauty contest like we think of it. Um, and there's a lot of sin involved. And there's people being taken from their homes to please the king. And, you know, we, we look at that and think, well, it's got to be nice, right? Well, no, not really. I mean, this is a godless king driven by his desires, and he does some pretty horrific things. And we don't want to necessarily dwell on those things and be depressed by them and discouraged by them, but we have to realize that God, in his sovereignty, takes things that aren't sugar-coated and uses them, and uses them for his glory, and uses them for the good of his people. And that is an encouragement, because how many of you have faced hard things? Hard times, been involved in different sin, and, you know, if, if the Bible were a children's storybook that just made everything real nice, you might be tempted to think, well, what about me? Because I don't see this horrific circumstance that I'm in in the Bible. All I see are nice people doing nice things and nice things happening. But that's not God's word. God's word takes the hardest, toughest, ugliest things that this life has to offer and shows how God works in and through those things for his good, for his glory, for our good. And, and that's the story of Esther, again. Beauty contest? I don't, I don't think so. We'll get to that. But we don't want to fall into the storybook syndrome as we read through the book of Esther. Another thing that, that we need to be careful about as we read the book of Esther is, and, and I mentioned this last time, sometimes we, we draw a distinction between um, secular and sacred. In other words, we, we go, well, this just happened. You know, this is secular. This has nothing to do with God. It's just something that happened in my life. And, and we're tempted to, to go through our lives going, well, this is you know, uh, this is just how life works, and then this is how God works over here. But the truth is, there is no separation. God is in it all, working in it all, using it all. And so the things that we might be tempted to look at as, oh, well, that's just an interesting circumstance, or, hmm, well, that was fortunate that that happened. Guess what? It's not just fortune. It's not just blind luck that something happened. There is 
a God of the universe who is sovereign over all, and he is working in all. So as we read the book of Esther, you might be tempted to go, oh, well, that was fortunate that that happened. But it's not fortune. It's God's sovereignty and his will being worked out in this story, even in the really hard things, even with a horrible king who doesn't serve God, who doesn't love him, who makes some pretty bad decisions. It all works together. So is God in this brook? Yeah, absolutely. But we don't want to sugarcoat things, and we don't want to fall into the mistake of saying, oh, well, that was a nice coincidence, because that doesn't exist in this book. Another thing that we want to look at and be reminded of through the book of Esther is just how God works. There's a really good quote that I came, uh, came upon as I was studying for this. Um, Deborah Reed is talking about the way God works, and she says this. In other words, the text serves as an invitation. It is as if the author says, I'm inviting you to hear this story and to respond to it with faith. This journey to faith requires pondering the events, searching for God within the plot, and choosing to see his activity, his active presence. So the story veils God's presence rather than hides it, teasing the reader to look beyond the veil to the greater reality that can be uncovered through searching. The story requires a response to the mystery of the veiled presence of God. This response is faith-created and faith-building, for it is a personal and individual response rather than a second-hand one built only on the author's interpretation of the story. Now, what she's saying basically is this. You could read through Esther and go, where was God? Or you could read through Esther and say, where is God? See the difference? <laughs> where was God means, no, he wasn't there. Where is God means, let me see. Show me, Lord, how you're working in this, how you're acting. And what she's saying is the book of, of Esther is an encouragement and an invitation for us to, to read this book and to go, hmm, okay, how is God working here? And then as you read it with that in mind, you see, oh, he, whoa, he did this, he did that through the king, he did that. And it just so happened that Haman came thinking that he was going to be praised and then he wasn't. Coincidence? No, God. You know, and when you look at it like that, you you're invited to see God's work through pagan people, through bad circumstances, and, and to be amazed by how he works. Another thing that, that this book touches on in regards to the way that God works in creation, uh, another great quote um, by Charles Bridges, he says this, God works in inert matter, God acts by physical force. In brute animals, God acts by instinct and appetite. In intelligent beings, by motives suited to their faculties. And in his redeemed people, 
by the influence of his grace. Read that one more time because it takes a, a second to think about it. But he's talking about how God acts in different things in creation. And he says, in inert matter, God acts by physical force. Think the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea. In brute animals, by instinct and appetite, shutting the mouths of the lion, going against their appetites, other things like that. In intelligent beings, by motives suited to their faculties, which we'll see a lot in Esther, intelligent beings who have certain appetites, certain desires, and they act according to those things, and God uses that. And God also acts in his redeemed people by the influence of his grace. And that's the coolest one, because that means that we are not just bound by our instincts and our faculties, but God can work in and through us to change us, to mold us, to give us courage to do things that we wouldn't have done otherwise. And so God is at work in all things. He's at work and can use inert objects. He can use beasts. He can use people who are just acting according to their lusts and desires of the flesh. But the greatest way that God works is through his redeemed people. And he does that by grace through his spirit. And that, again, is a huge encouragement as we see that in Esther. We should be encouraged that that is how God works in us. By grace through his spirit. Do you have a challenge that you think, man, I can't do this? Well, you're probably right. But guess what? If you are his, by grace, through his spirit, he can help you do incredible things. He can help you through circumstances that, that you would not handle without him. Because that's how he works. In his people, he influences us by grace through the spirit. So, how does God work? How should we see him work in here? Well, first off, he, his work is veiled in this book, which is why we came up with this title, Veiled Sovereignty. Like, it's not immediately visible, but it's there. And also we see how God works in, in different ways in different people. In many ways, in the story of Esther, Ahasuerus kind of acts like a, a brute animal. If we were going to uh, follow Charles Bridges' uh, quote here. And, and we see the king led by his desires and his cravings and his lusts. And he's just driven by those things. And he never changes. But we also see Esther, who does change. And the question then has to be, well, how did that come about? We'll get to that. All of these things should, should give us hope as, as we talk about the fact that, that God works in uh, bad circumstances because this is the world that we live in, right? I mean, we all have different troubles of different kinds, and we have to be able to see that God works in and through those. 
Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You know, what is the end goal of God's work in our lives? It's that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And how does that happen? It happens by us going through a lot of junk. And by God bringing us through a lot of junk. And by us growing and being encouraged by going through all that junk and seeing God's work. And encouraging one another to look and see God working in your life, in their lives. Because he is. He's at work. So, all of that was kind of what we didn't get to. And now I want to rush through this first chapter. And I do say rush because we don't have a whole lot of time. Now, we could spend a lot of time delving into like all the intricacies of exactly who Hasuerus was and um, that's fascinating. Looking at the history of Persia, fascinating. But we just don't have time. So I'm going to kind of breeze through this, get the, get the high-level view of this, and then just come back and, and talk about a couple important things. So first off, we have Ahasuerus who, uh, who throws a big party. And it's important, the, the book of Esther starts out by introducing Ahasuerus, and this was the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And that first sentence is important because it, it not only tells us who this king is, but it tells us what's important to him. He wants to be known as the king who rules. And the number of his provinces is named. Now, there are different ways to break up a kingdom. Um, and in fact, the Persian Empire was broken up into larger uh, geographical areas. But he chose to say 127 provinces because that sounds pretty impressive. There were other kingdoms that didn't even come close to having 127 provinces. So King Ahasuerus has 127. Pretty awesome, huh? Well, just to prove how awesome that is, King Ahasuerus, in his third year, decides, you know what? People need to know how important I am and how amazing my kingdom is, so I'm going to throw a big party and invite everyone, and people are going to come, and they're going to see my great kingdom, and they're going to love me. They're going to worship me. They're going to say, you're the best. Man, I can't believe how awesome you are. And he throws a party that lasts 180 days. Do the math. That's a half-year-long party. And he spares no expense at this party. Towards the, the end of the first paragraph there, it talks about how he, he brought out the king's wine, the king's best, and he said, the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. In the culture back then, it would be uh, typical for uh, the invitees of the king 
to not drink unless the king drank. So they would be looking to him. And when he would raise his cup, then they would raise their cup. But he's, he's feeling generous. And he says, basically, hey, guys, you don't have to wait for me. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. And that's pretty much what they do. We don't have to wait for you. We got the king's wine. Sweet. 180 days of drunkenness. You know, and along with that comes great praise. And, oh, Azarius, you're the best. You're the awesome king. I love you, man. And Hazarius just eats it up, soaks it up. He's loving it. This is great. I am awesome. That's really what this, this party is about. King Ahasuerus is trying to establish the fact that he is the best. Now, after the 180 days, if, as if that wasn't enough, he decides, you know what? One more party. A week-long party, this time just for the people in Susa, his capital. And so he throws another party and invites everyone, great, uh, down to small. So everyone is invited to this party, and, and they live it up again. Not only that, but the queen, Vashti, she kind of throws her, her own separate little party. And we really don't know why, um, but... She has her separate party with uh, the, the women. And towards the end of this week-long party, King gets a great idea. Hazarius thinks, you know what? Vashti, she's pretty. And I want to show everyone how awesome my wife is. And I want them to be jealous because I have such a beautiful wife. Now, I'm reading in a little bit here because does it say that? It doesn't specifically say that, but that's, you know, kind of the idea there is that he wants to show them that I'm the best in every way. And look at my wife. Well, the unfortunate thing is that Vashti has kind of had enough of this. And uh, for whatever reason, um, she says, uh, no. I'm not going to come. Now, there is uh, some speculation here when uh, the invitation comes in verse 11, and it says, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Uh, some commentators believe it's with her royal crown, and that's it. Um, in other words, hey, everyone, here she is. And this is one of those areas where it's like we're tempted to, you know, sugarcoat it a little bit. Like, oh, he couldn't mean that, could he? Well, this guy's been drunk for half a year. Um, yeah, I think he probably could mean that. And maybe that's why she refused. Maybe it was something else. Uh, we don't know, but she refuses this request. And so here, King Ahasuerus has just spent a whole half year convincing everybody how great he is and then his wife says no what that can't happen and so it kind of it throws him a little bit and he he goes into this uh 
tailspin and he's like, well, what do I do? And so he gathers around him his, his counselors and basically says, what do I do? I, I mean, Queen Vashti, she, I told her to come and she didn't come. Well, his, uh, his counselors maybe aren't the best counselors in the world, but it's interesting that their counsel basically just affirms what he wants. What does he want? He wants to be the greatest. He wants to be in control. And so his wise counselor, Memekin, says, well, you know what you need to do? You need to put your foot down. Because, boy, if Vashti disobeyed, and then if other women in, in the empire hear that she disobeyed, guess what? She didn't only sin against you, but she sinned against everyone because she set the example. And now we're all going to have wives who disobey us. And he just plays into this power trip that Hazuerus has. And he says, so what you need to do is you need to legislate wives to obey their husbands. That'll work. <laughs> right? Wives? Right? My wife isn't here. <laughs> I'm sure she would agree. But, you know, we, we laugh at it because we see, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's the best answer. And yet it, it appeals to his pride. It appeals to uh, who he sees himself as. And so he says, yes. And what did it do? The advice pleased him. It pleased his pride. It pleased his base fleshly desires. And he went with it. So this edict is made. It, it doesn't tell us how the wives responded. That would be an interesting uh, parenthetical chapter there. Um, but in any case, he, he makes this attempt to, to control and to exert his power. And it shows us also, what, what does he do with Vashti? He kicks her to the curb. He says... You, you offended me, and now you're gone. No mercy, no grace, nothing, because I am king. Now, it's generally agreed that there's kind of a break at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, in which Hazuerus goes on a little adventure. He's the Persian king in control of the Persian Empire. And one of the things that his predecessor, Darius the Great, had started to try to do was to take over the Greeks. And he was unsuccessful. He sent uh, messengers to the Greeks and famously uh, asking them to uh, willingly submit to Persian control. Uh, and, and famously, the, <laughs> the Greeks in Athens and Sparta. In Athens, they threw the messenger down a pit, and in Sparta, they threw him down a well. They weren't happy with this gracious offer of Persian rule. And so Ahasuerus decides, well, I'm going to pick up where Darius left off, and I'm going to go conquer those Greeks. And so he leads a great military campaign against the Greeks, and ultimately, it's unsuccessful. 
He has a, a really hard-fought win at the Battle of Thermopylae, which is uh, kind of a classic battle that everybody learns about in world history. But ultimately, that, that Battle of Thermopylae, even though the Greeks lost, it, it stirred up the country and stirred up the rebellion, and they ultimately uh, defeated the Persians, trying to take them over. So he's coming back from this military escapade with his tail between his legs. And, and this power and this might that he's just displayed in chapter one has been bruised and damaged. And guess what he wants? Well, I wish I had Vashti. Wish I had a queen. Give me comfort, tell me how amazing I am. But I don't. Why? Because I made this silly decision to just banish her. But I'm the man. I gotta stick by my rules, right? And he just continues in his pride and in his arrogance. And again, we see his counselors come around him. And what do they do? Again, they encourage his appetites. They encourage his, his sinful desires. And they say, oh, well, yeah, you don't have a... Forget about her. On to something new, all right? This is what you need. You need a new queen, but not just any queen. You want the best of the land. So here's what you do. You gather up all the virgins of the land, bring them into the harem, and then, this sounds kind of crude, but you test drive each one of them. And whichever one you like the best, you make your queen. Well, that sounds really good. Now, not to be crude again, but what guy wouldn't like that? You know, I, I mean, it, it feeds those base, lustful sexual desires that he has as an unbeliever. And he goes, yeah, that sounds really good. It pleases him. And so he does it. And that's kind of where we're going to end as we walk through um, the book of Esther. But we have this, this king who is just a megalomaniac who, who does everything according to his own desires, who wants to make a name for himself, show everybody how great he is. And he's missing his queen, so he decides, I'm going to gather up all the virgins of the area and bring them in. And some maybe were honored by this. Some maybe said, yeah, are you kidding? A chance to be queen? Absolutely. But there were probably others who really did not want to be involved in this and who were not willing participants and who were pulled from their family, from their home to go please the king. This is not a nice thing. This is not a beauty contest. This is rape. This is the abuse of power. This is a lot of bad things. And how can God work in that? Right? I mean, 
Isn't God too good to work in and through things like that? Well, no. We'll see as we move on next time we come back to Esther. But God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And this is just something that we have to remember as we look out at our world, there are horrible things happening. And it doesn't mean that God is not in control. What it means is that he is in control and though horrible things happen, he can redeem even horrible things. And he can bring good out of the worst. And if you're thinking, well, where do we see the gospel in this? Well, there it is. He can bring good out of the worst. Because in our hearts, you and I, our king has awareness. Before Christ, we are driven by our lusts and our desires, and they are against God. And you may think, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as he was. Mm, yeah, you were. You were in opposition to the God of the universe. And that puts us all in the category of being worthy of eternal condemnation. But for the grace of God, we are King Ahasuerus. We are a ruthless despot, only seeking to build his own kingdom, only seeking his own glory, only seeking after his own lusts and desires. And without God, we are hopeless and helpless. You know, and, and when you think of it that way, that ought to just blow your mind then when you read Romans 5.8 that says, while we were yet sinners... Christ, what? Died for us. We were in rebellion against him and he died for us. He paid the price on the cross for our sin, for our rebellion. And then through simple faith in him, we get forgiveness of sins. We get the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us in this lifetime. We get the hope of heaven Amazing. The gospel is truly the best news ever. And we catch a glimpse of what we might be here in the book of Esther. So is the gospel in the book of Esther? Yeah, I think so. And, and you could probably find it in other ways, in other aspects too, but Praise be to God, he's saved each and every one of us from being King Ahasuerus if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And we have to realize that that's all God's grace and it's all his mercy shown towards us. Do we deserve it? No. Was it because we're so amazing that he chose to save us? Absolutely not. We were horrible. Praise God. He's good. He's merciful. And he's kind towards us. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to look at Esther and really the chance to see um, a, a life that is lived according to the flesh and just the, um, the extent that it can go to. And Lord, help us to realize that each one of us um, could be in that situation, but for your grace, but for your mercy, but for what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we are eternally grateful. And help us to be uh, inspired to, to worship you because you are our refuge. You are our strength. You are our salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen.